Hello and welcome to Revenge of the Drive-In, the podcast where we watch, review, and discuss two movies randomly selected from a list of over 2,000. This podcast is brought to you by the Grandma Sophia's Podcast Network, and this week we are discussing Martin, George A. Romero's masterpiece of a vampire film, as well as The Alligator People. I am your host, Patrick, and I am joined here by... My name is Kevin. I'm the special guest co-host for today. Yeah, we've had you before. We did uh, the Quatermass Experiment and Bride of the Monster. So you are, for one reason or another, you are, our, I guess, our go-to for 50s schlock sci-fi horror. Although this time we're at least doing a movie that's that's different than that, too. Yeah, I was going to say, if you choose everything randomly, like Bride of the Monster and Quatermass Experiment, at least were made in like the same decade. Yeah. And the same genre. Yeah. This is this is a wild comparison. These Yeah, every now, every now and then we get one of those, and it's more likely to be some a pairing like this. But yeah, uh, my favorite was we did Friday the 13th Part 3 and The Prowler together, and those movies might as well be the same damn thing. <laughs> I know, that that's a perfect lineup right there. But yeah, it makes total sense to me. I'm a big fan of complete randomness. I considered lately, and this was just my brain going crazy during thesis mode, I should just do a TikTok series where I claim I'm going to try to review every single movie ever made and just get a random number generator on Letterboxd and see what comes up. I tried it and it was like, I didn't film anything, but I looked at it and it was like, I kept getting like DVD special features. Oh, (laughs) Uh, Rush, they had I, those on, uh, on Letterboxd. Yeah, I got like a 1940s or 1930s Mexican film that has no subtitles online, and that was the only yeah, one I was able to find. Yeah. You full. almost have to narrow it down to at least stuff that is, you know, available and also watchable in your language. Which, by the way, to transition, Martin is a film that is barely available for whatever reason. I don't know what happened. Really? It, it's the it's the polar opposite of Night of the Living Dead, George Romero's other film, which is the most widely available film ever because it fell into public domain. It's probably the most famous public domain movie, at least that I can think yeah. of. And Martin, it's on Tubi, actually. I didn't discover that until uh, recently. But otherwise, it's like nowhere to be found. I think it's not available on DVD in the U.S. unless you get it as an import. And it's like, I don't know what the hell happened. It's just, uh, yeah, it's unfortunate, too, because it's a great movie. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I think this is part of the reason why I'm so intrigued by like George A. Romero's career between Night of the Living Dead and Dawn of the Dead, because... There are all these little spots where you think after Night of the Living Dead becoming such a sensation, he would have more work and have like a, a reputation of some kind. But instead, they tried just... to make him make like porno movies. I know because he had no yeah, other se- season, season of the Witch was supposed to be a porno movie and he insisted that it not be that. I did not know that Martin was so unavailable. I mean, it was released by Libra Films and they released a number of films that are like much more readily available than this. Like, they released Eraserhead. They released The Crazies and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, I don't know what happened with this one. I only saw it for the first time last year, and I didn't even know where where my professor had it. If I'm not mistaken, Dawn of the Dead went through something kind of similar to this, where for a while it wasn't commercially available. But at least with Dawn of the Dead... It had gotten such a wide DVD release that you were still able to find it. I know I found it at a used DVD store before I knew that was, like, not easily 
attainable. And and then now I, I think Dawn of the Dead is, it's in print and stuff. I don't think Martin is in the US. It's very strange. I didn't even know it was on Tubi either because I had a feeling that there was a copy on YouTube in good quality. And there was, mm-hmm. it's in 1080p on YouTube. So okay. regardless of like, you know, official circulation, some kind okay, of, sure, yeah. it, you know, for everyone to watch and it's, it's good quality, you know, well, good quality well. for such a, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this, this movie is not good quality itself. It's an excellent film, but I was actually wondering about this. I had this thought early on in the film when I'm watching it, when, when, Martin and uh, Colonel Sanders are wandering around Pittsburgh. Yeah. Imagine going to a movie theater to see a new release and the movie looks like this. I don't know really where (laughs) this movie played. That's a good point, too. I, I, um... I've seen th- three different years listed as as the year this movie was released. I've seen 76, 77, and 78. Seems like 77 is the most accurate. I don't know where the 76 comes from, and I think the 78, maybe it's possible this movie got a little bit of a wider release after Dawn of the Dead, maybe, or something, because this was kind of just George Romero's little movie before Dawn of the Dead. But yeah, it did play at Cannes, I want to say. Yeah, I pulled up. I th- I think 76, the date is most likely like when they shot it. And with such like yeah. a, with such like a, a platform release, it's tough to pin down a specific year. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, I pulled up the, I was curious about it when you brought it up. I pulled up the release date info page on IMDb, which of course could yeah. all be wildly incorrect. Yeah. Who knows? There's, they have it listed as in October, like, like after the May screening at Cannes in 1977, they have Austin in October 77. They have DC in May 78. They have LA in December 78. So my guess okay. is that it probably so that just never. 78, yeah. Maybe. I mean, my guess is that it just probably never got a wide, huge release yeah. and they just put it in different territories based on whoever mm-hmm. wanted to buy it. Stuff like that is tricky and i've run into that problem a lot when i've been like writing scholarly like academic pieces on exploitation films because it's always required with like mla formatting and stuff to put the year that a movie mm-hmm. was released oh, in. sure yeah but it's impossible to tell with stuff like this mm-hmm. but the reason i bring up like what theater this played in is because i could imagine with theaters that are known for playing much cheaper films like that that an audience might be used to this kind of look sure but even so like the color like i think i read that he wanted to shoot it in black and white and the studio made him put it yeah that makes sense to me but the yeah the color is so washed out here and yeah ugly to look at except for the blood like the blood is the only thing that pops I was going to say the blood actually looks good. The blood looks better than it does in Dawn of the Dead. The, the the Dawn of the Dead blood it looks like the a bit like the Italian movies of of the era of the Dario Argento movies and stuff where the blood just isn't the right shade. It just looks way too off. Here I think the blood looks pretty good, and it's Tom Savini doing the effects just like with Dawn of the Dead. Of course, he appears in this film as well as as well as he appears in Dawn of the Dead. I think part of the reason the blood looks better might also be just because, like, the contrast between the washed out, like, ugly mm-hmm. look of the rest of the film and the bright red of the blood here it mm-hmm. is, like, more eye-catching than Dawn of the Dead, yeah. where it's, like, it's all shot on 35mm. Dawn of the Dead was 35mm, right? I think so. I mean, that Dawn of the Dead looks like a real movie, I guess, for lack of a better uh, way to phrase it. The Amusement Park, which is the George, the lost George Romero film that recently got a release. It stars uh, the guy who plays Kuda in this movie. 
that was like a weird like i think that was made for like a lutheran church or something and it was like deemed too disturbing to to like release or something because i don't think it was supposed to be a horror movie but he kind of made it like a psychological nightmare Mm -hmm. Um, i love that movie by the way i it's great it's it is great but that I'm going to draw comparisons from kind of the that the look of that movie to the look of this movie. Like, this looks like something that's not a professional production. It looks like something just some guy made in his backyard kind of thing, which is sort of what it is, really. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of what it is, but also that vibe, that, that like, fits the movie's vibe so well. Exactly. This is such a depressing movie, but I don't mean that as a bad thing. I, I think that's actually one of the movie's strengths. It's just a sad melancholic movie yeah it is it's so bleak just so bleak and like every time i i i've seen it twice now and every time like or both times i should say when it starts out it feels slower it feels like okay yeah yeah, i mean we'll maybe hopefully we'll pick up the pace soon and by the end it has such a massive impact without ever really changing like the the tone or the pace of the film that you can't imagine it working any other way that's a really good way to put it yeah and um you know we'll obviously have a lot more to say about it but let's jump into the plot here yeah my name is martin i'm 84 years old people think i'm crazy when i tell them how old i am i'd like to be normal i just have a sickness the only way i can survive is by drinking blood we start with martin played by John Amplis, boarding a train from Indianapolis to Pittsburgh. This actually reminded me of uh, the movie Carnival of Souls, which, Kevin, I'm sure you've oh, probably seen. Oh, yeah. That's because it just kind of starts in the in the middle of a shot, seemingly. It doesn't feel like the start of a movie. It's just like, oh, oh, we're starting. Okay. Yeah. okay. Well, uh, it's also a great comparison because it does, it, both of them feel it like, you know, someone who's making industrial films, making yeah. like a low-key horror film. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. But yeah, so Martin boards the train. He, I don't want to say catches the eye of a woman who also boards the train, but he certainly is interested in this one woman. She catches his eye. And at night, he just prepares like a needle and eventually just breaks into her cabin. As he does so, he like imagines, Romero does this thing where you mentioned the black and white and he was supposed to or he wanted to shoot this movie in black and white. He still utilizes the black and white in these, like, dream, not dream, but, like, imagination sequences. And this is Martin kind of imagining this woman being welcoming to him. Yeah. Yeah, and so he has this, like, brief moment of, like, oh, this is what it's going to be like. And then when we cut back to reality, she's not in the cabin, and it's because she's in the bathroom or something. It's just, like, this real, like stark contrast to what he had been imagining but when she gets out of the bathroom he jumps on top of her injects her with whatever's in the needle who which he insists it's just to make her sleep and then there's like a struggle she's like swearing at him and then eventually she does fall asleep and he takes off her clothes and has sex with her unconscious body and later on slits her arm he opens up her arm and lets the blood kind of pour down onto his naked body and then he eventually starts drinking it out of her arm yeah because martin is a vampire although as we learn in the film he is not your traditional vampire in any way and that's kind of what those um 
black and white sequences are really about because they don't look like full Victorian because they just didn't have the budget to pull off that look. But with the the women in the nightgowns and the the candles, like that's I assume that's what they're going for. Yeah, that's what I'm. Well, I think it's like that's. You're talking about the fantasy sequences, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's like, it's really hard to tell because sometimes like they feel like they could be flashbacks, but other times... Yes, sometimes they are, I think. Yeah, that, that that's worth noting. But it does really feel like in his head, he's playing out fantasies of a vampire and not fantasies of like the kind of thing you would, you would want, but fantasies of just a typical vampire lore vampire legend Mm -hmm. he's very much against like you know the idea of like there is there is no magic in the world there's no Mm -hmm. there's no such thing as like the classic kind of vampire but when he says Mm -hmm. it it almost sounds uh resentful maybe because and this is just one element that i noticed he really does not want to do any of this like and that really comes through in the in his performance which is incredible and part of yeah. the thing is part of the thing that gets me over all of the sequences of him drinking people's blood is that he's not good at this no. he's not he's not good at like yeah. every like in every single scene something goes wrong and mm-hmm. he's is so upset that things are going wrong he can't like because he has this vision in his head of what's supposed to happen in this scene and how this will go over well and then it just it gets completely screwed up and compl- and he's feels weak as a result and all he wants i i thought early on that like i thought about comparing him to the old kind of vampires where they can hypnotize people and then they have very willing participants to Mm -hmm. you know to to drink their blood and he does not have that and then later on in the radio well that's that's partially why he puts them to sleep before he has sex with them because exactly that's that's his way of it's not consent but that's his way of at least not getting slapped in the face while it happens right now the sex thing though i'm not it 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 does remain unclear as to what he actually does with them right because they never does he ever actually say that he does have sex with them because they never show it they they, they both he he strips them down and he gets naked as well but you never see him like you never see anything no i i I understand what you mean but i i there's a scene with the with the one who he doesn't end up killing, the one he just puts to sleep where he's like fondling her breasts and stuff. But that is that is a, a fair thing to say because, you know, I hate to get into it, but if you have sex with someone and then murder them, there's a lot of your DNA there, you know? Um, yeah. We know he doesn't, yeah. he doesn't even really know what condoms are. He has a line later on where he's like, I should have worn one of those things or whatever. Like his views of sex or, or whatever, because he, he, he sounds like a child when he talks about it. He, he's very, it's, it's weird to say this because he's having sex with unconscious women, but he's like weirdly innocent about this stuff. He's very shy. And the way he talks about it is like a child talking about it. When he talks on the radio, he refers to it as the sexy stuff. Yeah. He's like, I'm too shy to have the sexy stuff with anyone who's awake. And, you know, w- w- one thing that I think is fascinating about this movie is this is the opening scene, right? We see our anti-hero have sex with an unconscious woman and then slit her throat and drink her blood. Right. And yet he ends up being sympathetic throughout the film I- to a large degree. And I think it's interesting. The film is very much aware 
of what it's doing with the sexual aspect of it. Like, the film doesn't shy away from how creepy and disturbing and messed up this is. Right. You know, there's a lot of cheap-ass horror movies out there where it's just the woman's naked because we can get nudity in the movie and it'll sell more. No, the, the movie's trying to do something with this nudity, with this sexual aspect to communicate about the character and, and all of its themes and stuff in the movie. And I think that's interesting. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree. And I think part of like, I think when you bring up that Martin is sympathetic, I think that makes the scenes where he attacks these women or these people in general when it comes to, you know, the the two uh, homeless mm-hmm. men that he attacks and the, the guy that... The boyfriend. In, yeah, the boyfriend in the, in the that ends up in the one house. I think, like, the fact that he's sympathetic, like, Romero knows to amp up the creepiness of these attack scenes because mm-hmm. they're so... They're, they're so intense and he knows that like by the the fact that we have like sympathized with him to a degree up to this point makes those scenes mm-hmm. more disturbing and mm-hmm. and then yeah i he, agree with that yeah and it also i think that's part of the reason why they make the film so that martin doesn't fully want to it see it seems like martin does not want to be doing much of this like he's complaining about the feeling mm-hmm. he's getting the feeling anxious and jittery and that he needs a fix i mean frankly he's he's more of a drug addict than anything else yeah and which is it's interesting that they use the needles too it's like this this film when he pulls those needles out and you know it's this ugly 70s looking that like you're like oh this is like a drug movie and it's not but in in some ways it kind of is you could say it's a metaphor for that but yeah he definitely plays the character like he's just addicted to something yeah i don't know if it's a full metaphor like if it's a a metaphor that can like sustain a whole movie so i'm glad that it's more just like hinted at and there's all this idea of like drug iconography and the way that martin behaves and is sort of outcast by some people and others take pity on him and stuff like that Mm -hmm. it all feels very real and reminiscent of other drug films much more so than any other vampire film that came before this i don't like nowadays we have the jim jarman film only lovers left alive that feels very much like an like a a successor to this in a lot of ways okay i haven't seen that one there is very much a sense of like it's not meant to be like a strictly strictly a horror film and focused on thrills it's just about like people who have this like problem they're addicted to blood and they need to get it some way somehow Mm -hmm. the lot of the same types of themes that this movie plays on but before Martin, I cannot I cannot think of any vampire movie that deals so much with vibes and mood than this one does because in most of them vampires are still romantic in some way whether it's the mm-hmm. the old Bela Lugosi films or the um or the Christopher Lee Hammer films that take place mm-hmm. in, the, in the incredible gothic settings I don't know like no one else was really experimenting with vampires and with genre in this way except for maybe Ganja and Hess from 7374. Oh, yeah, okay. Which I just I just realized right now. So Okay, kind of yeah, that's point. that's not a bad comparison. Yeah, so Martin is just like this own it's its own little beast that really only has one other comparison that was barely released when it came out. So it Oh yeah, no one saw Ganja and Hess. Although interestingly enough, 
it, you know, it's the George Romero connection. Dwayne Jones. Right, of course. Star of Night of the Living Dead is, is in that. I think it's the only other movie he was in. I think he was just in the two movies. The, it's like the Michael Cimino of low-budget regional horror films. Not Michael Cimino, sorry. Oh, my God, that was such a stupid thing to say. Um, John Cazale. John Cazale. Yeah, John Cazale. I, yeah I, I think I knew what you meant, but yeah, John Cazale. Yeah, Dwayne yeah. Jones is the John Cazale of regional horror 70s cinema. There you go. And, and that's going to transition to where we are moving in this film, because I love the regional aspect of this, that this movie is shot in the Pittsburgh area, which George Romero's from Pittsburgh. He got his start working with Mr. Rogers, who's, who's also from Pittsburgh. So Martin gets off the train in Pittsburgh. He meets Kuda, who is this old man who looks like Colonel Sanders. He's dressed like him, too. And he, he's played by the actor from the amusement park i think those are his only two movies too this guy lincoln um, mazel what a great actor too just based on those two things i want to see more stuff with him in it i haven't seen the amusement park in a while do you remember him having an accent like this in that movie no or no, is this, this is acting this that's completely what i thought we put on for this movie. he does have almost like a a transatlantic accent like he has he has, okay. a, he has an acting voice i think but sure. this movie it's like very much a put on that's what I thought, but it's like a good, consistent accent, whatever it is. He's supposed to be some somewhere in Europe. Yeah, I think they say um, it, but I can't remember. Yeah, he's he's an old-fashioned guy, and we first meet him, and it's like, okay, who is this? Is this, is, is this Martin's grandfather or something? They, they barely talk to each other. In fact, Martin doesn't say anything for quite a while, but he takes him to another train, so they walk across town, they get on another train, and take it to the dumpiest-looking suburb you have ever seen in your life. It's this, like, industrial like run down almost ghost town it's just like dogs are roaming the street free junkyards the most depressing looking place you've ever seen in the world it looks like a third world country or something and this is just a suburb of pittsburgh it's actually i think i think the name is bradford oh um, yeah yeah something something along those lines braddock, no, Bra- braddock braddock yeah, yeah. this action. is actually interestingly enough this is braddock's been in the news kind of recently because the new senator, the junior senator for Pennsylvania, John Fetterman, was the mayor of Braddock and um, before he was lieutenant governor of the state. And Braddock is apparently, I guess it's it's kind of like, you know, if you've seen, you know, like Roger and Me or something, it's kind of like maybe it's a bit like Flint, Michigan, where it was like this industrial town that was relatively booming in its day. And it just lost all of its industry and is just like this depressing place to live i guess the um actually so i'm looking at the wikipedia page the population is 1721 in the 2020 census a 91.8 percent decline since its peak of almost 21,000 in 1920 jesus that's like that's like unfathomable to me like this this i mean there's a few lines from uh the tom savini uh the the character that he plays about how like there's no work here and and it feels so authentic this seems like a town that if you were a young guy guy or gal growing up here you would just want to get the hell away from it yeah i mean um, that's a huge theme between the the kuda's daughter or niece or something in the film granddaughter granddaughter yeah yeah that's Christina. a huge theme throughout the movie it's just people wanting to escape all this escape this whole town and it's it's christina played by christine forrest who uh married george romero a few years after this and I was going to say they remained married. No, they divorced in 2010. What the hell? That was like a like 
a year, a couple of years before George Romero died. You couldn't just wait it out. Odd. Well, I was surprised, and I, I found this out after I looked up, uh, after I saw the amusement park. I looked up Lincoln Maisel, the man who mm-hmm. plays Kuda in this film, because he's already incredibly old. Like, the plot of yeah. both Amusement Park and Martin hinge on him being a very old man. And yes. he just died in 2009. Wow. He, he was, was over 100 years old then? 106. Jeez. What a guy. He almost lived long enough to finally see the amusement park released, I mean, in the grand scheme of things. Because that was released, what, in 2019, 2020? Yeah, so about 10 like years after he died. Insane that, you know, you could star in a film that becomes, like, quote-unquote lost when you're already mm-hmm. in your 70s, and you could live to see it, like, almost 50 years later. But yeah, the, the setting of Braddock, it's like, it is, I think that really adds to the film's sense of melancholy and just the bleakness of everything. Oh, 100%. Because it is yeah. not, like, like, this is not a place that you go for intense thrills. This is not a setting that conjures no. up dread and horror. It's a setting that conjures up depression. Yeah. And that's like the overarching Depression and tiredness. Thing. It just feels like a tired town. Those scenes where he's just like wandering around, especially the scene towards the end with the parade, it just feels like the mood. The movie is great. I rarely would like watch it multiple times because it is so like oppressive almost in sure. its tone. But really, really great movie. I think that mood really adds to it and makes it what it is. So when they arrive at Kuda's home, Kuda shows Martin to his room and gives him some ground rules. He well, first of all, he says he identifies him as a vampire, Nosferatu, and he says that I'm going to save your soul and then I'm going to kill you. And this is like the first. Thing. <laughs> this is a, he, Martin still hasn't said anything to this guy, and he, you see all this garlic like hanging up over like every door and stuff. There's statues of Mary all over the house, crucifixes, crosses. And the ground rules that Kudo lays out. Kudo, by the way, is a last name. Right, which yeah. It, it's, it's strange because he introduced himself as just his last name. These two are cousins, by the way, if I haven't said that. But then his granddaughter always acknowledges him by both his first and last name, which is weird. But Tata Kuda is his name, which is Tata cool... Kuda? Oh, yeah. Yeah, Tata. 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 <laughs> yeah, it's just a fun name, but... but... <laughs> Yeah, so um, the ground rules are when you take a victim, don't take them from in town here. Go to the city and also don't talk to my granddaughter. Or, or, Or is it that my granddaughter will not talk to you even if you talk to her? There's something like that. Basically, like, either way, they end up talking to each other. Yeah, and, and, but the granddaughter is the one who starts it. Yeah, exactly. Like Martin does not go out of his way to talk to almost anyone anybody in the yeah. film, <laughs> but because the granddaughter speaks to him first and tries to reach out to him as a friend, Martin thinks it's someone that he can talk to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this is the first instance of Martin kind of the theme in the movie or, or, or recurring theme is martin explaining to kuda that there's no real magic he he like grabs the crucifix he's like listen this doesn't hurt me he takes a bite out of the garlic none of this this stuff is all magic in the movies that's not what it's like here that's not what it's like in the real world him and kuda their relationship throughout the film is like 
wonderful because you get the sense and this is i know this is all just the actors doing this you get the sense they really hate each other like they true like martin can't stand kuda kuda is kuda well everyone hates kuda in this movie pretty much oh absolutely i mean Kind, kind of i mean everyone except the really the elderly people who shop at his grocery store or whatever right because anyone who's like kind of young like father george romero is like laughing at him and um i mean he doesn't hate him but yeah i love uh, that it christine cuts... certainly is not christina with him. um tom savini's character i think i think it's just because kuda represents like everything old like everything that led to this town and the people in it being the way that they are like he represents yeah. the old guard that is keeping you know the younger people from actually from actually doing anything or like making anything of, of what's going on here and it's why Kuda is obsessed with mythology. You know, he's obsessed with Martin being this mythological, monstrous creature who, rather than like trying to make any attempts to understand what's going on, mm-hmm. he's definitely the antagonist, but not just to Martin, to just like, you know, to, to so many people in the town because it represents kind of a backwards way of thinking. Yeah. And the, the first interaction he has uh or kuda has with uh the tom savini character who um is arthur christina's boyfriend he says something about how there's like no work in this town or something and kuda's like there's plenty of work and then arthur's like no you don't understand like work that can actually elevate you or whatever i don't i don't remember exactly what he says but and that to me is like so relevant to the world today because you know, when was the last time you were at a restaurant and there like wasn't like a waiter or waitress shortage, right? Like you see it all the time now. Yeah. And then if you're around certain people, maybe not Kuda's age, but generally kind of older people, they're like they they'll all say like, "Oh, no one wants to work anymore." And yeah, like, I mean that's been going around for centuries now. It feels like. Yeah, and it's like it's not that though. It's it's like you can't make like a good living doing these kinds of jobs that are that there are shortages in. Yeah, I mean, it's not even, and it's not even just a matter of like there. It, there is certainly a matter of good living, with the minimum wage just remaining stagnant. But it also is a very young person thing to be working in a job that you know has a small, like doesn't pay you very much, and but also doesn't provide much like internal satisfaction. Like you're not satisfied right, yeah. with your life and what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And that always seems like a very young person worry, obviously, with like staff shortages and like fast food chains and everything. People always talk about that and about how we need more service industry workers. But even before the pandemic, and this started to become more widespread because people realized that like they wanted more out of like what life was offering them. I remember mm-hmm. having that same issue with certain jobs that I worked in my early to mid 20s. And I thought, like, certainly I had to be doing something more important than this. Because when you're young, yeah. it's like you have to you you define yourself by like what you spend like every hour of your day doing and spending so much time on work. And hell, I mean, I'm still going through it sometimes with, uh, with mm-hmm. why I'm in grad school, because I wanted to find something that's more like satisfying for me. Because mm-hmm. spending all your days just doing like a service industry job or something small like what Kuda's thinking of in these scenes mm-hmm. just does not fulfill you in any meaningful way. Yeah, we see we see what what he actually has Martin do. Martin delivers meat from his grocery store, butcher shop, whatever it is, to bored and lonely housewives or, or elderly women, 
and he does so on foot. This seems like just the most miserable job in the world. And you're he doesn't walking. even have a bike or anything like yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. It's like he probably could get a bike if he wanted, but still. And he's walking through the most depressing looking town. Uh-huh. This does not seem like a fulfilling job in any way, really. Absolutely. I mean, like, my heart goes out to George Romero. I know he lived in Pittsburgh, not actually here, but to to be around this, like, he captures it so well. Just the, you know, I've said it a million times already, just the depression of everything. And I forgot about the housewife aspect of it, where it's like all these bored, lonely, bitter housewives who sometimes just use Martin as a vehicle to just unload all their frustrations on it's it's a brilliant idea to just put a vampire in the middle of all this mm-hmm. it is yeah people don't understand what's wrong they think that i'm a monster they think i'm a vampire and so martin as i said he does this he works this job for kuda he also begins to kind of make friends with christina christina when she meets Martin, already knows what Kuda says that he is, and eventually she has a confrontation with Kuda about how, you know, he's not a vampire, he's just, like, sick, and he needs help, like, he's not actually, like, he doesn't have fangs, and then that's where Kuda goes in his whole thing. It's like, I guess it happens, it's like a, a curse in his family, according to him. It's just every now and then someone's born, and they're a vampire or something. It's, it's not really clear yeah. But he he insisted that Martin's actually like 80-some years old. Your mother believed in this. And she's like, well, big deal. My, my mom's dead. She died before I even knew her. Doesn't doesn't Martin also claim to be 84 years old? He, he does say that at one time, but it's almost like he says that to Christina. And I'm not 100% sure if that's... I mean, he does say that and he is being honest. But I also, when he says to Christina, I almost think he's just like kind of mocking the situation too i don't know how if she's taking that as actual confirmation yeah i mean i i doubt she believes it either because you know she just sees him as someone who's sick and needs like like mental help yeah and he's a young guy or young looking guy anyways so martin as he's doing his little um delivery his food delivery he meets abby who is this incredibly lonely bored housewife who he again he doesn't say anything to her she offers to drive him back to town if you didn't know about pittsburgh pittsburgh is incredibly hilly too so yeah so she drives um him back to town she stops and get gets gas and is just talking to martin basically how much her husband sucks and how she knows he cheats on her all the time and she's only putting a dollar's worth of gas in the tank because she's like, I know he drives off and goes and cheats on me, so I'm not giving him any more money than I have to for that. Although, keep in mind, a dollar's worth of gas back then was pretty close to a full tank, I think. <laughs> she has to, like, monitor, like, the mileage on it in general, yeah. partly because, well, I know that, you know, she is, she does think that he cheats on her, but also, like, he wants her to know about her like he's controlling her even though mm-hmm. um you know he's going off and doing his own thing i'm wondering about martin there's a scene she asked martin to get the notebook out of the glove compartment for her to jot down the mileage and i mm-hmm. could be wrong and if i am wrong you can just edit this out but isn't there also like a contraceptive sponge and like a vibrator in the same like i don't know about a, a vibrator but i definitely saw tampax the tampacks are there too, but I swear. Yeah, I, I noticed the tampacks. I didn't notice the others. You might be right. 
Uh, well, if it's a vibrator, it's a very ugly looking one, like a very 70s. Um, yeah, well, I was going to say it's the 70s. This is, we'll get to it. It's the 70s. This movie features the ugliest 70s interior decoration you will ever see in your entire life in that one home invasion scene. Oh, God. That is the most depressing, disgusting house. It's a beautiful house from the outside, but. Yeah. Do you want to get into that then? The, that home invasion? Yeah, yeah. So, so that is one of the best scenes in any horror film i think so martin he's scouring for his next victim he finds this housewife who he wants to he wants to break into their home he waits until the husband is away on a trip and he knows he's away he actually goes and gets the same like remote control garage opener that that the husband had so he can just like break in easily and then when he actually gets into the house, he gets into the bedroom after he's prepared the needle and everything. And then he's surprised that this wife is with some boyfriend who kind of looks like John Voight. Um, <laughs> I, I, I never put that together, but yeah, really I, I always right. thought this looked like John Voight. Uh-uh. But yeah, and, and he kind of freaks out, but acting quickly, he ends up stabbing that guy with the needle injecting him with you know whatever sleeping drug and then he runs off and the wife and boyfriend are like arguing about he's like i don't know what just happened but he stabbed me with some drug you better call the cops or the but she insists like we can't call anyone because no one can know you are here but he's eventually like listen this could be life or death you need to call someone so she goes and gets on the phone gets the number for the hospital and is going to call the hospital but then martin picks up another line in the basement or the game room or whatever and keeps interfering with the phone and just like typing in numbers when she's trying to type in numbers and for some reason they do like sci-fi sound effects when he when he taps the the phone numbers i don't understand why that oh, is yeah is that supposed to be the sound effect of the phone? It's it's almost musical, whatever it is. It's just very strange. It's a weird Maybe. touch. Yeah, I actually don't really know why that was the case. I assumed that it was supposed <laughs> to be the sound that the phone was making. So I just yeah, but it doesn't. It, but... I don't think a phone, any phone on earth, has ever sounded like that. But yes, <laughs> good I, point. I think it's I think it's really just to get home that he's hitting buttons. I think, but I don't know. It's it's strange. But yeah. this the scene, as as we have both said, is just incredible. The editing in it, it's so it's just so perfect. It's so precise. Cutting back and forth between this woman on the phone screaming and crying because she keeps forgetting the phone number shirtless john voight (laughs) screaming and in becoming increasingly panicked and then martin just hanging out with the phone yeah with the needle like hanging out of his mouth and they eventually figure out that someone else is on the phone and she tells the boyfriend that there's the phone in the game room so he goes down to like look for it and then martin ends up locking him outside yeah And then Martin goes back to the woman, and I think at this point he injects her with the same drug, but then also the boyfriend gets back inside, and there's a bit more of a struggle. Yeah, I mean, Martin has multiple needles, so like... Yeah, he he does. does, So he does end up drugging both people. And I Uh will say, while the boyfriend's outside, Romero uses the house so well because there's all these... There's a lot of glass. Yeah, a lot of glass, a lot of windows. So the boyfriend can see everything and you can see him getting increasingly panicked as Martin is running through the house and he can watch the whole thing. And it's it's it adds a mm-hmm. whole other element to the scene that's mm-hmm. really interesting. 
Yeah, and then when the boyfriend's back inside, he eventually collapses, and Martin goes up to the wife as she's just getting back to the phone, mm-hmm. and then he just puts her to sleep, and he says something like, I just, you know, I only wanted you. He wasn't, he, the boyfriend wasn't supposed to be here. And he's like, you'll be all right. All you'll do, you'll go to sleep and you'll wake back up. And we see that he means just this because he ends up only killing the boyfriend because he just needs some blood. Yeah, which is great that that they do that exact same reasoning in the first scene where he tells the the, the victim on the train that she's just going to go to sleep too because in this in this scene, we still think that Martin could just be lying. Just like he did with the woman on the train. Mm-hmm. But instead, that's exact. That's what he said. He means what he says this time. And he goes to the boyfriend. Yeah, so he ends up stabbing the boyfriend in the neck with like a tree branch, which is classic Tom Savini stuff where you can tell it's just someone lying down in like a bed of leaves and <laughs> with a fake neck. And then he drinks that blood and he goes back inside the house, presumably again has sex or at least nakedly cuddles with this other woman and then showers and leaves her be. So that's a big thing. He always has to clean up. He, he, I guess he also, he cleans up himself with the shower and everything, but he also cleans up the entire house to make it look like nothing happened. Yeah. And while this is happening... We hear him talking on the radio with some local radio DJ who has like an overnight six to six show. He's calling in and telling him about like his struggles. He's really just wanting to talk to somebody because he's so lonely. And this this radio guy calls him the Count. And at one point, like, you know, he's fascinated by this conversation. Martin is telling him about how it's nothing like the movies, you know, this being a vampire. It's just like all this stuff. Women never want this. You know, no one's ever a willing participant. So I just kind of have to do what I have to do. I have to, I've gotten really good about cleaning up, though, and making it, you know, so that no one can track me down. But then he also says, when when they go to a commercial break, the radio DJ says, like, hey, Count, this is really great stuff. I would love to meet you in person. And then that's where when Martin hangs up. Yeah, I think that the 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 radio DJ is interesting because, you know, when he's on the radio, he he kind of treats it as a joke. But you do hear the, the genuine DJ, yeah. interest. You do hear the genuine interest in his voice when yeah. he's talking to Martin off the phone or off the off the air. Yeah, he, he's he's classic radio DJs. Like you get like a ridiculous caller calling in, and you think it's stupid, but you got to keep going because it's interesting, and you know listeners like it. So uh, you know the phone lines are ringing off the ho- or off the hook with people calling in for questions for the count and everything. Yeah, if there's anything that I could like imagine, I would want differently. Which is not it's not my favorite way to look at a movie. I don't always think like, yeah, if I was director, I'd do this. But I the scenes with the radio DJ add such a neat dimension to it. But it doesn't even show up to like halfway or a little bit more than halfway through. I almost want more of it like throughout, like in the beginning of the film too. But I understand because yeah, you have well. There's a few reasons for that. One, it is the radio show is established early on. Also, at the time, again, Kuda, old-fashioned guy, they don't even have a phone in the house. Christina really wants a phone. Yeah. And she talks to Martin about, you know, hey, you know, getting another line can't be that much more expensive. We can split you can we can split the cost for it and eventually they get a phone i guess obviously because martin's making these calls we never see when that happens but he asked christina for one at one point i can't I, oh, I think oh does he in, okay i think it's implied that christina gets him one 
Yeah, why can't he buy it himself? I don't. It's not he's even though he's making money off of his job. I wouldn't be. Able that's that's I guess that's I guess true. You know. Well, no, he does get paid because well, he, at least he makes tips. That's true. Because when he I also when he delivers the meat, the yeah. women tip him as well as giving him money for the actual food. So yeah, I don't. You're right. I don't know if Kuda pays him. I don't know if he has a salary. I wouldn't be surprised if Kuda took that that month that those tips from him either. Well, and then but then he does do the odd jobs for Abby, and Abby uh, I'm sure pays him. So he reconnects with Abby when they go to church, and this is a fascinating old church. It's like a burnt down. They say the church was burnt down. Abby offered to pay him to do other work around the house. He didn't, again, didn't say anything to her. But now at this point, he decides to take her up on that offer. So he's like helping fix her door and she starts showing affection towards him and this scares him and he kind of runs off. Like he doesn't fully know what to do with someone who like actually wants him in a in a real way, in a real, in a special sexual way. Yeah, and you say real way, but like, it's also not really that genuine on Abby's side. Like it, I, it's, I mean, it's genuine, but it's like driven out of just her loneliness and boredom. I think more than anything. Oh, absolutely. Like she refers to him, she compares him to like an old cat, an old alley cat that she used to have, which would just stare at her with these wide eyes, and she could just talk to it openly yeah. and not get judged. And she even says some like kind of demeaning things to him that she doesn't mean to be demeaning, but she's like. That's what's great about having you around, Martin. You don't have opinions. When I say, like, you know, like, Abby does not want him in any sense of, like, uh, she doesn't want to understand Martin in any way. Right. But she does show him a level of desire that it's, we we are supposed to understand he's never had before, like, ever. Like, no one. Yeah, never anything consensual, basically. Yeah, exactly. So, it, he, so he just, like, he runs off first. And then... Yeah, he, he he even tells the radio DJ over the phone, he's like, I've never done the sexy stuff with women who are awake. I'm too shy for that. Exactly, which is absolutely insane. Just an insane thing to say and to put in a movie. It's an insane thing to say. It's also, the guy's what, 85 years old? Not once. <laughs> so Martin eventually does go back to Abby's house and he flatly says to her, he's like, you keep inviting me over because you want to have sex with me, right? And he's like, well, that, that's good. I've never... <laughs> I don't know if he says I've never... Had, I'm sure he doesn't say I've never had sex with an awake woman to her, but he's like, no, if I'm going to do this with someone, I'd like it to be with you. So they have sex, and then afterwards, Abby is crying, and Martin thinks it has something to do with what he did, even though she says, no, it's not. And then she talks, I don't really know why she's crying. She does talk about how she can't have kids. I don't think that's necessarily why she was crying just now. I think she's just crying because she's lonely and depressed. I think it's, it's it almost feels like this, like a situation where she is like, she's upset at where her life is. It's like yeah. when, you, when you want something to take the edge off, like, you know, a harmless fling, like with this young kid here, you hope that that would help something. Or you could get some enjoyment out of it. And I always assume yeah. that she starts crying here because she realizes that... It wasn't that, what she was hoping for, yeah. Yeah, it's like it doesn't solve anything and just makes her Exactly. Depressed. Although she does continue to see him because they have a nice little picnic later. Yeah. Um, yeah, where she's also very was, depressed. She is, yeah. But the picnic was kind of strange because she had like a line or two implying that she knew he was a vampire 
when I don't think we ever see him explain things to her, but apparently he does at some point because she she says something like, you're not going to believe this, but I actually want what you have or something. And he's like, oh, there's nothing exciting about what I have. It's not like the movies. And it's like, okay, so I guess she knows he's a vampire. <laughs> Interesting. I, I didn't even catch that line. And then there's also um, a great scene when Kuda invites Father Martin over for supper. Father Martin, of course, played by George Romero, who you might not recognize without the Coke bottle glasses. <laughs> but I didn't at first. He almost looks like Tom Savini. Kuda is speaking with Martin. Martin is like a relatively new priest to the community, and... Kuda basically invites him over because he wants to confirm that Father Martin has his same beliefs and stuff. And he's asking him, like, do you believe in demons and all this crap? George Romero flat out, like, laughs at him. And he's, like, trying to be polite. And he's like, oh, you know, you should talk to Father Zalimus. Like, he believes in that stuff. But he's like, I don't think I do. And then Sakuda feels, like, insulted because now his local priest, you know, doesn't even reflect the views of the community when in reality i don't think it's the views of the community it's just his views yeah absolutely really. well i mean that happens sometimes people just like get so wrapped up in their own views that they think that other people have other people have to think the same way and they can't fathom anyone you know thinking differently. exactly and then so kuda eventually invites over father zalimus and they perform like an exorcism of some kind on martin who eventually just runs off and then he does this thing when kuda goes outside to meet him where he mocks kuda by scaring him he's wearing like a dracula cape and those like fake teeth that you get at a halloween express or whatever he, he just does that to mock him he's like it's just a costume it's this is all stupid yeah because kuda doesn't even like play up being scared he's he does seem scared at first and then he starts to realize martin is just is just fucking with him and is like, and just seems upset at him, like you, like you at, calling him the devil again and everything. And yeah. like I said, I just love the scenes between the two of them because they have such an interesting dynamic where they hate each other. They're messing with each mm -hmm. other. Kuda genuinely wants to kill him. Martin is just happy to mess with him the whole movie. He also said, I, I didn't say this earlier, but Kuda, when he was laying out his ground rules, he's like, you never take someone from the town, and if you do, I will kill you with that, without salvation. Absolutely. Yeah, that's, that, that's, that's key important. to remember. Although, it, it, I don't know how real... I mean, it's important to Kuda. It's really not important to Martin, because I don't think he believes that he can be saved, you know? Like, if I die, I die. Like, it's not really... It doesn't matter if you bless me or damn me before you kill me. Well, I don't think Martin wants to die, either i think that's the key. no like, that's true it's like when he says when he says um you know i'll kill you without salvation it's not like martin is like you know really afraid that he'll go to hell this time it's more just like living is better than dying all things considered sure so that's the way that i always took that and that's why he does we should mention about the home invasion scene that woman is in like pittsburgh in a completely different town. So he yes, does yeah. he does he does still kill people, but they are outside of Braddock. So Martin on the phone with the radio DJ talks about how he's kind of struggling to find, you know, who his next victim will be. He says he he no longer really wants to have sex with these unconscious women, so he he's like being more picky about who he chooses because he's not that attracted to any of them now, now that he's having actual consensual sex, I guess. Eventually, he kills a, a couple, of, or, or at least one homeless guy in an alley and drinks his blood, and then, because it's just in an alley, previously what he's been doing is he's always showered and stuff and cleaned up, 
but he can't do that here so he breaks into a store to get a change of clothes and that's when the the police show up and they chase him and they trace chase him i guess he he ends up in like a crack house or something some kind something of something along thing. those lines they that is not specified at all but i think they're credited as like drug pushers or something he inadvertently martin starts a shootout between the police and these like drug dealer guys or whatever drug uh, drug users at least and so like a couple people get killed yeah and he gets a chance to escape yeah martin escapes unscathed also one of these one of these drug pusher guys this name doesn't mean anything to me kevin it might mean something to you but one of these guys is played by tony booba that only means something to me because I was when I saw his name also in the credits as the sound clicked on it. Okay, he's a filmmaker of some kind who apparently made a lot of documentaries about Braddock and how um, depressing it was and like kind of how how it was affected by the loss of all of its jobs and stuff like that. He also apparently appears in Dawn of the Dead. I couldn't tell you who he is in that. He could ju- he could just be a, a zombie. Looking at some of this stuff, I'm really curious to see to see some of it. Just looking at the looking at the images and stuff like that. Okay. I think the scenes at Kuda's house were actually Tony Boone. Oh no way! I, I just I just googled who he is in Dawn of the Dead. He's he plays like the Mexican guy who, for no reason, puts his arm in one of those blood pressure things during the middle of a zombie attack. <laughs> he plays that character. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. It's <laughs> my favorite character in Dawn of the Dead. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think they filmed the scenes at Kuda's house at his, like, mom's or his grandmother's house. So that's the other thing. At I Tony Booba's mom's or yeah. grandmother's? Yeah, okay. Tony Booba's uh, grandmother's place, I think. Which goes to, sh- I mean, it's it's perfect because the house is decorated like an old, like a really old person lives there. So he escapes from this uh, shootout with the police. And then at one point he goes to visit Abby at her house and finds that she's killed herself in the bathtub and she's done so with a razor blade, which, if I haven't said, that's Martin's method of choice for slitting people's arms. So we hear him talking on the uh, to the radio DJ, and he's like, "I didn't, I didn't do this one. Like this wasn't me. This she just killed herself." Mm-hmm. Oh, and I, I should also say that Christina eventually leaves town because she she's going to leave with Arthur who wants to just get out of town, find a job somewhere. And she even says something like, again, this is just such a sad movie. She's like, I know we're not going to make it. This is this relationship isn't going to last, but he's just my way out of here. I just need to get out of Braddock, away from Kuda. And it's like, oh, that's just depressing. And then she insists she won't forget about Martin. She'll reach out to him. She'll write him and let him know where she is, but she never does that. So that just kind of makes Martin more depressed. Well, I don't know if she never does that or if, or if the movie almost He just didn't before. wait long enough? Yeah, exactly, or something like that. Because I, I feel like she, I don't, I think that Martin is just absolutely convinced that she won't write. And then, yeah, that's true. You know, that's based true. on what happens at the end, she she never will write to him. But right. yeah, I do think that maybe it's just me, maybe it's just me having faith in people. But I, I don't get, I think, I just get the sense of the more important thing is that Martin is fully convinced she's going to forget about him. And that was like the only person, the only person who really reached out to him almost as a friend. And then Abby's the only person who showed like any interest or desire in him, whether it was actually like real based on him or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. And now she's gone too. Yeah, both of these women have left him. Exactly. So you have that great scene of him walking through the parade, just like empty feeling. It just feels so for for the only instance of like liveliness 
that the town has shown so far, it's still an incredibly bleak scene. <laughs> to have martin just oh wa- sure walking the parade, into the yeah, parade absolutely. and walking through with it well he, and and it's just like he is just like walking along with the parade it's like he doesn't belong there yeah it just looks it's just strange looking just to see there's like this parade these people like enjoying themselves he's just like moping I, which i i heard that that was improvised like they were filming at the house and they heard the parade was going nearby so yeah I, like, I, that's what i would have guessed i didn't know that specifically great sure. I, I love trivia like that yeah classic independent filmmaking mm-hmm. yes yeah, so it the movie ends kind of abruptly when kuda just wakes up martin and says like i told you never to never to take any women from in town you do you think i believe that abby that or miss mrs whoever that she she killed herself and then he just stabs a, a stake through martin's torso we see this shot from adjacent to the bed where you can tell that they're just pounding the stake in kind of next to his body but it still looks kind of cool and there's blood and then they cut back to the shot of martin lying dead in the bed and that actually looks amazing yeah um, absolutely it, well it's, it's effective too because the blood like really spurts up like like mm-hmm. high into the into the room yeah pretty shocking compared to the other the other blood that we've seen so far because there's a lot uh-huh. of like there's movement to it it's not just like it's it's not just like martin slits open someone and the blood just sort of falls down mm-hmm. it's 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 especially in its abruptness like you said it was just it's yeah so it's surprising super it's abrupt out. It just it just happens. I actually didn't remember the movie ending quite this way, but we as we see Kuda burying the well, we never see him burying the body, but we see that that he's like gardening over this patch of dirt, presumably where Martin is buried. As he's doing all this, there's uh, we hear the radio, and it's the radio DJ, you know, saying, "Hey, Count, if you're out there, you know, people would love to hear you." And you hear all these people like calling in and speculating on what happened to the Count and stuff, and and someone's someone's like talking about like what what they think he looks like and then all this stuff and the very last thing we hear is just some guy saying i think my friend is the count you hear it over kuda putting rice over martin's grave is it rice yeah i think it's rice i don't know what the meaning of that is but i don't know the full mythology Well, maybe martin just got married I swear that's what it is. It, was, it seemed very. It was, I saw it like, it, like I thought it was just seeds, maybe. But he doesn't. He doesn't. <laughs> does he pour dirt over on top of it though? I don't know. I'll don't take a look know. at it again. But yeah, <laughs> cut all this out if we go back and look at it, and you find Kuda's find getting out into nice. that urban farming uh, <laughs> lifestyle now. Yeah. But yeah. Anyways, that is Martin. Kevin, what did you think of it? I love it, you know. It takes a while for me to fully, like, get on its wavelength because it is very oppressive at first, but it is incredibly made. And, like, the cumulative impact of everything is wonderful. So I really like it. What are your thoughts on the movie? Yeah, I, I, I 100% agree with you. When you say incredibly made, I think, it. you know, the, we kind of joked about the movie looks like absolute shit, but that's part of the charm, part of it. But it's it's incredibly well made, and just the the performances are really great. John Amplis is fantastic, and then Kuda, he's incredible too. Like I talked about that accent, I had to think like, does he have an accent in the amusement park? Because this seems so authentic. Yeah, it is. But, it's not a cartoon, even though it's like an Eastern European, like you know, Slovenian accent, whatever that comes from that vampire mythology. It does feel very real. Like it's not like a it does. cartoon in any way. 
I, I really love the amusement park just because I love that connection between it trying to be an educational film and trying yeah. to be a film that's about elder <laughs> abuse and how we should respect the elderly and and try not to like push them out of the way and you know make a world that's that's unusual uh-huh. for them. But it's so nightmarish. It's and like, meanwhile, it's the most disturbing film ever made. Just I know. I, you know, it's funny. Do you ever see um, what's that unauthorized Disney movie? Is that Escape from Tomorrow or something oh, like that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I've never seen that one. Okay. That movie kind of sucks. And <laughs> and the amusement park was like 100% what that movie kind of tried to do. Yeah. Even though, coincidentally, I'm sure whoever made that wasn't even aware of the amusement park because it wasn't released at the time. Well, I don't but think yeah, anyone had found is... it. I don't think it had even been like discussed. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, I, I, maybe like a... George Romero biographer would have known about it but yeah I mean I've seen I've seen a fair number of George Romero films I haven't seen his entire filmography but the amusement park was what scared me the most of everything and he's that's interesting because that's that's because that's the one that's not outwardly anyways a horror movie or it's not even meant to or it's not meant to be it's meant to be educational it's meant to be like a a social film where you learn about how how we should be better towards the elderly but instead it is just a complete nightmare so but did that's... you ever see did you ever see there's always vanilla no i haven't that looks like well i was gonna say that looks like the one movie i haven't seen by him but no i didn't see he did a lot more movies kind of later in his career that i wasn't even aware of like bruiser the dark half and then eventually he was just a zombie guy those are the only movies he could make oh executive producer on the crazies remake good for him Congrats. I actually like that the, the remake of that movie. I like that more than the original, even. But. I need to see that one. I remember when it came out, but that was like a, the midst of like a glut of tons of remakes. Like like mm-hmm. they, like even when they also did, a glut of zombies too. And the crazies, at least the original, the crazies isn't really a zombie thing. I think the remake kind of was. I could be wrong though. The last thing about uh, Martin that I was surprised to find out: apparently, the original cut was two hours and forty five minutes. I was going to comment on that, yeah. Yeah, well, a couple of years ago, well, the thing I didn't know is that someone found a version, that version, and they're restoring it right now. I think I, oh, so it hasn't been released, but okay, so that... No, not yet, as far as I know. Maybe we'll finally get Martin, in some capacity, released in the U.S., and maybe it'll only be the two, two hours and 45 minute one. Maybe that one will be released in black and white. I, 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 I'd be curious about that. Just very curious to see it, and very curious to see what was cut from the film because it moves at a very leisurely, almost lyrical pace throughout the thing. Yes. Like, there's so many times in the conversation where we were like, I don't know if they actually show that or if that's like what it is, but I guess that that's the case. Yeah. I, I'm assuming in, in that cut, we will at least establish when Martin tells Abby that he's a vampire. Yeah. Absolutely. And there will probably be more to the Arthur kuda discussion when they're at the bar because that whatever comes of that discussion he apparently reveals he tells him about the vampire stuff and then because i think he's he's about to tell arthur it's like hey you shouldn't you know um christina shouldn't have children yeah because one of them could end up being a vampire but he doesn't get to saying all of that so but yeah otherwise I'd, I'd be curious to i mean i just yeah I, I don't know how what that would be like I, i'm hoping for more aimless wandering around pittsburgh and braddock because i like, like the looks of all those scenes how depressing they are absolutely but, it's almost like yeah. slow cinema at that point but yeah martin is is a really a masterpiece i think it's probably my favorite vampire movie vampires don't tend to be my favorite things in horror 
Mm-hmm. But this is certainly an, like a unique take on it, or at least unique when the movie came out. And it's fascinating because it really blends... It's, I, I Even though he's a vampire, I really wouldn't call it a supernatural horror movie in any way. It's just, it's a psychological very, movie. Yeah, very and, much so. And Martin as a character is fascinating. And, and how, what the movie does with him, the first thing we see him do is have sex with, a, with an unconscious woman and then kill her. And somehow Romero and John Amplis with his performance are able to make him sympathetic after that. And it's kind of amazing that they're able to do that when they, when they set him up in that way. Yeah. But yeah, I, and I love, I, I mentioned the performances. John Amplis is great. Lincoln Mazel or Mazel or whatever. Fantastic as Kuda. And I really love the woman who plays Abby, Elaine Nadeau or Ned, Ned yeah. Um, she's, fantastic as just like she's so believable as this just like depressed woman like it's at the end of it it's not surprising that she kills herself because she just seems so yeah she's really great you know she's she's wonderful at portraying that so changing gears almost entirely well not entirely because we are kind of still dealing with horror just a very different type of horror movie very different type of vibe from martin still low budget still low budget yeah you know, for for the time, this would have been a higher budgeted movie than Martin. I mean, I mean, relative to its contemporaries, this is like a more expensive film. I think you can tell from the fact that like a lot of the movie does take place on sets as opposed to Martin, which has very claustrophobic sure. cinematography. But yeah, we're talking about the Alligator People from 1959. This is a part of a series. <laughs> of very low budget black and white uh science fiction horror films shot for fox by the producer robert l lippert who's kind of i kind of want maybe this is just me but i feel like he's been forgotten compared to so many other b-movie producers i was not familiar with him i I don't think i had ever heard of him yeah so he's not like a roger corman or uh william castle certainly no but he made almost the same amount of movies as those guys he produced like interesting well over a hundred how many films is he actually credited with his his wikipedia is insane because if you go to his wikipedia page it is divided up between all the different companies and sub companies that he worked under over the not worked under but like owned throughout the years He's credited with only 52 films producing on IMDb, but that's not even counting all the other films that his company just made over the years mm-hmm. under his supervision. So if you look at his Wikipedia page, it has, I've, I've not gone through and counted, but it has to be hundreds. I know some of the ones you might know, like it, yeah. Lost Continent, the the movie from Mystery Science Theater. Okay. I think he might have also done King Dinosaur too. The first Roger Corman film actually was for uh, Robert Lippert, Monster from the Ocean Floor. Okay. Oh, Rocket Ship XM. That's a Mystery Science yeah. Theater. When yeah. Rocket Ship that. XM, Radar Secret Service. That's kind yeah. of how I knew about him was because his name popped up on a number of different Mystery Science Theater movies. But he also gave people like Sam Fuller their first start. He he made he produced Sam Fuller's first three movies. I shot Jesse James, okay. Baron of Arizona, and The Great Steel Helmet. His most well-known, so a lot of B-movies, in case you couldn't tell. His most well-known movie, though, was The Fly from 1958. Mm-hmm. Also done under a deal for Fox, but shot in color. Beautiful color. That That is a beautiful movie. Yeah, absolutely. Don't really know uh, the level of his involvement in it. I think Robert Lippert, for me, has always been one of those guys who's like, this is definitely a subject for further research. Like, he okay. he has so many 
so many different so, kinds of films. He had his fingers in so many different parts of film history, but none of them like stick out or are as punchy in the same way of like a Roger Corman type. So The Fly is a movie that we've covered on this podcast. I enjoy that movie quite a bit. And The Fly, is, it's interesting because that's not really a B-movie. You know, it's, it's a little schlocky and it's dated because it's a, you know, 50s sci-fi, but, it, but it's in color. It has like real actors in it. It's like a real professional, well-made movie. But, well, now when, when I went to purchase The Alligator People on DVD, I found on Amazon a, a collection of four films, uh, studio classics of 75 years of 20th Century Fox. <laughs> This is clearly a French, or not a French, excuse me, a Canadian DVD release because it's got everything in English and French, like the the. Oh, film yeah, yeah, I know those. Background. But the four films are, you know, really making me question the use of the word classics here. But there's The Alligator People, The Cabinet of Caligari, which I guess is a remake of the classic sound. Yeah, movie it was an early about. 60s um, one, I think. And then, yeah, the 62, and then The Fly, and then House of the Damned, which I also don't think I've ever heard of. So, yeah. I bought this for the alligator people, but you know, I, I love the fly. So I'll watch that movie and I'll have to check out the other two, I guess. Yeah. And house of the damned, which I've, I, I'm looking it up right now just cause I'm, Oh, it's uh Maury Dexter. I think it's, that it has to be another, uh, Fox. Yeah. It is another Robert Lippert production. I assume, I assume these all aren't once you mentioned that the fly was, which I wouldn't have known that was, but yeah, I assume they're probably all, well, The Fly is a very professional-looking movie. It's a very, it's a very like colorful and memorable movie. And you said so. It's not quite a B picture the way you described it. The Alligator People is a for sure B film because it was produced to play on a double bill as the B picture to Return of the Fly. Which I was going to say, Return of the Fly itself is a B movie. That's like you take everything nuanced about the original Fly. And get rid of all of it. Return of the Fly is just a schlocky monster movie. At least as far as I know. I don't think I've ever seen it. That's why I was going to say I haven't seen it. So I'd or like maybe to... it's Curse of the Fly because there's another sequel. I know there's a famous scene. You know, famous. There's a scene with someone running around the woods in a fly mask. And he has to stop and like adjust the mask on his head. And then <laughs> just made it into the movie. <laughs> well, speaking... I've seen that scene. <laughs> Well, speaking of running through the woods with a mask on your head, we'll have to get to that oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. soon. So I think overall, like when people talk about the alligator people, they talk about Robert L. Lippert, but this is also the last film of director Roy Del Ruth. And I was wondering, watching this, if you'd ever seen any of his other stuff before, because this, this is one of those guys who's just a studio guy, probably made like dozens of movies, multiple a year. Um, have you seen anything from him before? I don't think so, but the name was familiar, and I'm looking up his, like, filmography. There's a lot of movies I've heard of. It looks like he made a lot of, like, musicals and stuff in the, the, yeah, like, the comedies. 30s and 40s. Yeah, comedies, yeah, I, some I'm, nice little fun movies. Yeah, I, I don't think I've ever seen them, but... Boy, it's a long, well, it's a long way down from Broadway Melody of 1938 to The Alligator People, I guess. But, I know yeah. that's what I was thinking. It's like there are a couple movies of his I've seen, which are um, okay. It happened on Fifth Avenue, which is a great underrated uh, Christmas movie, and Blonde Crazy, a pre-code James Cagney, I think Joan Blondell film. Oh, he made the ori- he made the original. I actually don't think it's the original because I think there was a silent version. But he made the nineteen thirty one Maltese Falcon. Yeah, that's what I was gonna say. He's okay. he's arguably most seen famous that, but... for that. He's most famous for making the version of a well known movie that people don't know. 
mm-hmm. because they're more familiar <laughs> with the 40s version. Right. But he's also the, – the one that I've seen clips from and I very much want to sit down and watch the whole thing one day is the Babe Ruth story from 19. Oh, no, I have seen that one. It's terrible. Oh, yeah. It's so bad. It's I, Did he do that? Oh, yeah, my he directed God. that too. That's um, that's like the because I'm I'm a big baseball fan. I'm, I was a big Yankees fan. You know, I grew up hearing about Babe Ruth and and you know Lou Gehrig and all this stuff. And you know, you have the pride of the Yankees, a, a great baseball sports New York Yankees biopic that Babe Ruth actually appears in, and that's a fantastic movie. Gary Cooper, uh, you know, and then the Babe Ruth story comes out a few years later. I think it was. It came out in 48. That's the same year Babe Ruth died. I don't know if it was made before or after he died, though. And that's, like, famously, like, the worst. I've I've seen that referred to as, like, the worst sports movie ever made. And it's like, yeah, it was pretty awful. But it was fun as, like, a like a terrible B-movie kind of thing. I want to say they got, like, some things, things shockingly wrong in it. And I don't mean, like, the history. Because, you know, you can... I was just watching Blonde. You can just make any, you know, anything up for, like, a biopic, right? But yeah. I want to say maybe Babe Ruth is right handed in that movie or something they got like some in Babe Ruth was famously left-handed or there's like some things that are like shockingly wrong in that movie I think I can't remember them specifically I mean this is a movie where like Babe Ruth cures a kid's cancer just by being yeah well I mean Luke Garrett kind of does that in Pride of the Yankees but it was done with a bit more class <laughs> a bit more taste yeah because he does kind of cure a kid <laughs> Or he, he promises to hit two home runs for a kid in the World Series. He meets the kid 20 years later when he's an adult or whatever, you know. Well, I wouldn't say that that, that was like Roy Del Ruth, like towards the end of like, <laughs> to like becoming a bad director. Because a year before <laughs> he made It Happened on Fifth Avenue. So I think like Babe Ruth's oh. story is just one of those things that like was just really rushed out on like at a B-movie studio. I think it was Allied Artists or Associated. It, pro- it probably was hey, Babe Ruth's got cancer. He's going to die soon. Let's slap together a movie. It probably was that. Yeah, and I think he actually lived for six months afterwards because he was okay. so inspired by what a great what a great portrait of his life they put together. But the movie couldn't cure his throat cancer, unfortunately. Unfortunately, you know. So he worked for a few years, just continued to work in B-movies, not having the same type of studio backing he did in the 30s and early into the 40s. Then he started to do TV shows, it looks like. 1959 returns to the big screen after five years with The Alligator People, which actually also, last note I'll make about the crew, Carl Struess is the cinematographer here, who worked on films like F.W. Murnau's Sunrise and Charlie Chaplin's The Great Dictator. Okay, I was going to say, I knew I knew that name when you mentioned it. I, I had heard of him. The original Ben-Hur also? Yeah, yeah, the original Ben-Hur, Island of Lost Souls, the Frederick March, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Dr. Hyde. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, yeah. Island of Lost Souls, that's a great one. Yeah, this guy's very accomplished. Yeah, the movie is just... Gone with the Wind. We didn't mention Gone with the Wind, the most famous film ever made. Who knows how many different people worked on that movie. I that's like true. Six directors. That's true. So just overall, an absolutely stacked cast of people making a scent making a b-movie pretty much making the alligator people <laughs> yeah making a movie the title that's called is, the alligator is amazing people. so let's get into the story Inside this strange, forbidding plantation, on the edge of the death-laden bios, there is a horror beyond belief. A scientist turns his cobalt rays on the revolting, scaly monarchs of the swamps. 
to transform men into hideous living gargoyles whose faces must be forever hidden from human sight. There's a framing device here, and I'll be interested to Kind of like the fly. The fly has a similar kind of framing device. These two psychiatrists are talking. They're very bland, just like immediately forgettable uh, psychiatrists. And they bring in a nurse that they're going to give a sodium pentothal to, which I think is meant to be like an early sort of truth serum or Mm -hmm. drug. Something like that. All it does is pretty much like hypnotize her, it feels like. Like she will, like she'll be passed out for most of the movie and recalling like repressed memories when she went by a different name. Um, mm-hmm. You know, she's Jane Marvin in these framing scenes, but throughout most of the film, her name is Joyce Webster. So we start to go into flashbacks and Joyce, the first scene we see is Joyce leaving for her honeymoon with her new husband, Paul. And on the train, they seem to be very much in love, very happy young people. And Paul gets a telegram that he has to leave to make a phone call. And when he leaves, he vanishes like like Joyce does not see him again. And we don't Mm -hmm. know anything about where he went. Joyce doesn't know anything. And eventually she finds an address there was an address i think he used when he was he was registering at college when he yeah when he went to lsu i think he was probably oh they actually say it's lsu i think so he was probably classmates with nba hall of famer bob pettit who went to lsu at some point in the 50s maybe 40s has to be the exact guy well he actually appears in the film at some point right bob pettit what no i'm kidding so who is this actress you said you're you're like very familiar with her right Beverly Garland. Well, I'm not. I'm not okay. very, very familiar with her. Okay. But she was because she was on a lot of TV. But, oh, my three sons with Fred McMurray. Yeah, but in between TV shows, she was in a lot of early Roger Corman films, and okay. made a name for herself as being sort of like a, a very talented actress who was also kind of no nonsense. There's a lot of great stories of her memories of the of the sets and making these really low budget movies. It conquered the world when she saw the the little monster and that thing. Her first response was, "Oh, that conquered the world." <laughs> She was known for having like a very, very good at like portraying these ridiculous scenarios with a sort of sense of strength, not but not just being like a super passive like female lead. And she kind of has that in this film, too. But yeah, she sort of just mostly stuck to TV after the Roger Corman films, had some small roles here and there and other things like Stark Fear, which I've never seen, but I know it's also a very low budget B movie from the 60s. I think the first thing I ever saw her in was she was in an episode of Friends in the 90s oh wow um the poker episode where she plays the old woman who teaches them how to play poker so paul vanishes her husband vanishes and the the movie skips over several months in these Mm -hmm. flashbacks where she says she never heard a word from him and decides to track him down to the address that he used to go to college and this address is this plantation or mansion somewhere deep in the bayou in louisiana and she decides to track it down because there's a delivery being taken to this address and shows up at the train station the delivery in a scene i thought was hilarious is just a box labeled like radioactive cobalt highly radioactive that she just like sits on while waiting for at the train station who comes to pick it up but lon cheney jr one-handed one-handed lunch yeah you don't i don't know if you see it in the opening scene but when he starts driving you see he has a hook for a hand yeah 
Lon Chaney in this movie, like Indestructible Man a few years before was like an incredibly depressing film, incredibly depressing performance. He seems to have no energy and I'm just like, oh, you know, that's just Lon Chaney Jr., you know, the last decade of his life probably doesn't have like, you know, that much energy as he's like acting these days. In this film, he gives a wild performance. Mm-hmm. That this I wanted to say something about it. So Lon Chaney Jr. I love the guy because you know I will forever love him for the Wolfman if nothing else. But you know Universal tried to make him into a star, obviously because because of his father. You know he was the one who kind of got the Universal monsters rolling. So like Lon Chaney Jr. He's a legacy. We can make this guy a star. Lon Chaney Jr. With the exception of the Wolfman was a terrible leading man he should have been a character actor and if you see him in like high noon what in of mice and men yeah he should have been a character actor and he was kind of thrust into stardom because universal wanted to capitalize on his name and i think he really only works as a star in the wolfman and he's so much better as a character actor i love him in this movie he's he's doing like a pretty awesome like cajun accent kind of thing yeah and he's just this like bitter old man who hates alligators because he got his hand bitten off by one of them and this is just an awesome performance i really liked him yeah that's the thing he's like he's so angry all the time and like kind of like and not like a bitter like depressive angry he's over the top he is like he he's like frothing rage also was this the inspiration for the carl weathers character in happy gilmore it better be. I, I would love to like. <laughs> I would love to contact people because the backs, the tragic backstory of Lon Chaney's character. I don't even know if they say his name. I have it here that his name is Manon or Manon. He is just. He hates alligators. They took his mm-hmm. hand at one point. Now he has a hook for a hand, and he will take the opportunity to kill any alligator he can, including one scene on the way back to the house yeah. when when Joyce arrives in Louisiana. He just goes out of the way to run one over. I was going to say, did they actually run over an alligator? Because they cut right before the car would go over it, but... They also cut when the car is still moving and it's so close to the alligator that I can't imagine they didn't run it over. They go back to the after that they have a shot and she's like, oh, you didn't have to do that. He, he didn't that alligator didn't mean any harm. And then he's like, didn't mean any harm, did he? And he holds up his hook. And then they show a shot of the alligator like scurrying away. But that could be a different alligator. <laughs> they might have just run one over. I don't know. It's possible. It's it's one of those things where it's like you genuinely have no clue unless someone came forward and said, yeah, we just murdered a bunch of alligators on this film. Yeah. This is before Heaven's Gate. This is before the no animals were harmed in yeah. the making of this film era. I would have to this go back and look at the... even the Amazon cannibal films from Italy, you know, where they're yeah. killing dozens of animals per movie. I'd have to go back and look at the uh, the shot again, because it could also just be a rear projection. You know, it could just be a rear projection of a car in front of an alligator. I... You're right. There's there's ways it, it could have been something else. They could have shot it in reverse, although probably not because I think the alligator is moving and you, yeah. know, you can't get it. But it was also just a very cheap film, so who knows whether or not they actually yeah, exactly. you know, would have I been think, able to. I think they ran over an alligator, unfortunately. Unfortunately. Well, for everyone listening, you don't actually see the alligator run over. So That's true. Uh, so it's not because Tasteful cutaway. they cut away. And I don't, and yeah, you're right. I don't think his character actually does run it over, but he, he tries to. But even if he didn't run it over, within 
15 minutes, night falls at the plantation, and he's just out there with a revolver, just firing yeah. into the pond, <laughs> trying to hit alligators <laughs> all night. And I'm just imagining, at that point, the, the keeper of the house has told him to not do this while, the, while Joyce is in the house, while they have a guest. And he, the conversation's just like, he must do this every night. Just go out with a revolver <laughs> yeah. and bullets and try to see how many alligators he can kill. <laughs> yeah. So when Menon, the Lon, Ch- I'm just going to call him Lon Chaney because they never hardly ever refer to him as name, and it's sure. it's just Lon Chaney. When he goes to pick up the cobalt, the the box of radiation they've all been exposed to, Joyce is there at the train station and demands to be taken back to go to this house and get answers as to where her where her new husband went. So she goes back to the house and runs into the the keeper of the house, who for a lot of the movie I feel like is doing like a Mrs. Danvers from Rebecca. Lavinia Hawthorne, who was the wife of the person who ran the plantation, and now she kind of does. It's a little bit odd because it's or it's hard to really describe. So it's not the same last name as Paul, whose name is Paul Webster. And at first, Lavinia right. tries to pretend that they've never heard of a Paul. They don't know what she's talking about. They don't know why she got that address, but there's no other train leaving until tomorrow. So I guess you have to spend the night here. Classic kind of like old dark house setup. Yeah, but with someone like Carl Struess behind the camera, it's not quite as moody for an old dark house as you would think. There's a lot of like tacky wallpaper. <laughs> no, listen, it, yeah, including <laughs> in the James, James Whale would have pulled it off better. Sure, absolutely. I honestly think this was like one of the last movies most of the people who worked on this film made. <laughs> think it, after this, they kind of just retired. Almost Roy Del Rue's last film. Carl Struess doesn't seem to have any real credits beyond this. At least those two. It's it's odd that they didn't make much after this. So it's like, after the alligator people, it's like, well, I've said everything I need to say. Yeah. I have fulfilled my artistic vision. Of course. Now I can Or I maybe can it was guilt over possibly running over an alligator, a live alligator. Could outside. be. Lon Chaney has the hook-armed, hate-maddened Cajun. I'll kill you, alligator man! Just like I'd kill any four-legged gator! So that night, a local doctor comes to... Or not <laughs> he refers to himself as the Swamp Doctor. <laughs> Just sounds so funny when he's like, I'm the Swamp Doctor. This is my swamp buggy to get around. And it's like, what? Why is he talking like that? <laughs> Actually, no, maybe I'm not I'm not thinking of the Swamp Doctor. Like, there's a scientist who essentially lives and works on the plantation, right? And you don't fully okay. know, and you don't fully know what he's up to. But when he meets up with Lavinia? God, I always forget that name because I've never heard it before in my life. When the scientist who seems to work at the house, but you don't quite know what he's doing, meets up with Lavinia and says, like, you know is questioning this new this new woman who's staying there they do make a hint that they both know who paul is and they're wondering why this woman is there lavinia by the way is you've, you've never heard of that name it's the name of titus andronicus's daughter the one who uh, oh, gets raped and gets her hands cut off and yeah interesting just, just like an alligator bit off her hands and then that night <laughs> and yeah i did that's the only that. time i've come across lavinia i think but yeah a very literary film. Exit pursued by alligator. Yeah. That night also, Joyce hears a piano being played in the house, and the, the sound seems, like, recognizable. So she goes down mm-hmm. to investigate it, and whoever was playing the piano runs away. 
I like the really dark lighting here it, because it looks like there's something mysterious looking about this guy. He's wearing like a trench coat. Yeah, those are the uh, times yes. when it really does feel like the old dark, ha- the the traditional mm-hmm. like old dark house uh, narrative. Because at nighttime, the house really is like suffused with this very moody lighting. My my favorite bit about this part, though, so he opens the door when he sees that it's her. The piano player scurries away and runs out the window. But then when she goes to look at the footprints, you see the footprints are all like six inches apart and it makes it look like he just like (laughs) what was he doing it's like the faster you run the more you're the further apart your footprints are it it just looks so funny it's it looks like he was like daintily walking away (laughs) you can tell that those are just footprints like someone casually walking across the set left like right before but even 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 more so than casually like a casual walk is a longer step than that this was just like someone deliberately walking as <laughs> as taking as small steps as possible it looked very funny to me <laughs> that's funny i didn't even notice those so yeah uh, th- i'm gonna i might need your help because i can't exactly remember when we find out who that guy is so i'm trying to go through this chronologically I think it's when um, Lavinia confronts him, like, out in the woods or something. Was that the same night, though, or was that the next day? It might be that it's probably the next day. Yeah, this whole film takes place essentially on one location, and it goes, like, night, day, night, day. And there's not really any real, like, you know, rhyme or reason for, like, when these scenes happen. So the the chronology of what I have might get a little bit mixed up. But... The next day, Joyce is wondering about these these noises, the piano being played, who else is here. There's the swamp doctor that comes to visit, and I think he doesn't he's not familiar with Paul either, right? Yeah, I guess I guess I I forgot the swamp doctor and the scientist are different characters. I was, that's I was thinking because that's the same one. That's why I was so confused. I that I but then I went back to the notes and. Okay. Well, we'll, well, we're just establishing that. Whether that's true or not, the Swamp Doctor is okay. a scientist. So she meets the scientist guy, and he puts up a front. And he's never heard of Paul, does not know who he is, but is overall generally more friendly than Lavinia is. And I think he does say something in particular that hints to Joyce that, like, everyone's kind of lying about not knowing who Paul is, not knowing whose house is. So Joyce confronts Lavinia and demands to know like what like like what happened to Paul. Like they like they know who Paul is and they need to they she needs to get to the bottom of this. So Lavinia, who's been like this super angry, intimidating woman throughout, just breaks down in tears and says that Paul is her son. Mm-hmm. We don't know much about Joyce and Lavinia's relationship after that because after that they seem to be kind of Mm -hmm. okay with each other throughout the rest of the film but it just fades out and we never fully get more of that conversation joyce sees the figure again and i believe at this point the figure it's been revealed has been paul amazing makeup on him like that's what i was gonna say scaly reptile look on his face it looks really good i think yeah we don't know the full details about what happened to him but all we know is that paul is covered in these scales and this very alligator like exterior skin yeah genuinely good makeup like not just for a b movie i think this looks just genuinely good genuinely good makeup i was i was gonna say the same thing that unfortunately is undercut by him doing a frog voice throughout yeah what was that that was kind of interesting i don't know it sounds like do you know the character actor eugene pallet 
Not that I'm aware of. He's a he's a comedy guy. He appeared in a few musicals and Ernst Lubitsch films, and he he has the almost the exact same voice. I would also compare him to. Um, I don't know if you're a big sports fan, Kevin, but there's a uh, he was an LSU football coach named uh, Ed. Orgeron, I think, or Org, Org. I always have trouble saying the name, but but he was like a Cajun guy, and I remember he sounded really funny. He he, he I remember my brother said he sounded like the Cookie Monster um, <laughs> when he when he talked. But but yeah, that, that's almost like a is he. I think he's trying to do a reptile thing, but it kind of reminded me of like a Cajun accent in some ways too, in a weird way, probably unintentional. But that's interesting. I hadn't thought about it that way. Because Lon Chaney Jr. talks weird, too. Well, Lon Chaney Jr., I can imagine he's trying to do a Cajun accent. I think he pulls that off pretty well. It's for, for, like, Lon Chaney Jr. Yeah, he does pull... He he pulls that off pretty well. But this guy, uh, Richard Crane, there's no other way to say it except he sounds like like a frog voice like (laughs) (laughs) well there is another way to say it it's to say that he sounds like a cookie monster but yes that's true yeah well i think it's like it's it's deeper than the cookie monster sure and there's one line in particular i put it in my notes where just because of the way he said it i cracked up laughing um i think it's when when he's talking to lavinia and is expressing like how how much they need to keep this from joyce because they he doesn't want joyce to know about what's Mm -hmm. going about what's going on he says i love you i love her mother (laughs) should be a very you know like heartfelt moment where it's like he has he, he doesn't know what he's supposed to do because it's his wife and he loves her so much but he says it in this like like deep frog raspy and like almost muffled a little bit too like he like he can't say words very clearly with his makeup on right yeah so there's really great makeup that is unfortunately totally undercut by him doing a silly voice every time he has to talk it's a, it's also undercut by eventually the 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 full monster reveal is absurd. Absolutely. Well, we will we will definitely have to get to that because that's when the movie really turns into something beautiful. Yeah. As Robert Brasson would say, not beautiful images but necessary images. Okay. Well, that, that's what that's what you come to a movie called The Alligator People to see. Really, I mean, exactly. You're you're here for the for the necessary things, the images that are important and you'll take with you forever. So essentially, Joyce follow Joyce sees Paul again wandering around the property and follows him out into the swamp where Paul is trying to escape from her essentially. And she, you know, she walks past a number of alligators and there's a giant snake and it is pouring down rain and she gets rescued in the middle of all this by Lon Chaney Jr. who takes her back to his shack and really tries to press her about taking off her clothes so she can get warm and then you know when she refuses he wraps her up in a blanket and then immediately tries to assault her yeah because you know if it wasn't already established by the fact that he kills alligators for fun at night uh lon cheney jr in this movie is just a very bad guy and at one point in the middle of all this paul who's half alligator man at this point walks in and knocks lon cheney jr out like just gives him a really bad punch in the jaw knocks him out cold when when i think alligators i think punches exactly that's that's their preferred (laughs) method of attack that's what i always get a kick out of um 
some of the old Godzilla movies when Godzilla's like fighting. Yeah. It's like for some reason he just resorts to boxing half the time. It's like he's he's a giant dragon. Why is he just punching? I would love to see a uh, a scientifically accurate Godzilla movie where you see where a giant lizard attacks a city but behaves like a giant lizard would. Well, that's 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 what Shin Godzilla is pretty much. Oh, I haven't seen that one yet. I've heard good things about it, though. So at the house, um, you know, she's being taken care of for when she wakes up. Meanwhile, Paul, who we now know the full deals details of, is pressing the scientist to give him an untested treatment, which basically revolves around pumping him full of radiation until, like, he becomes human again or the alligator parts. At least Kira's voice, please. The doctor agrees to give him the treatment, and everyone decides that they can't keep all of this a secret from Joyce anymore. So the next morning, the doctor reveals to Joyce that the treatments he's been and the experiments he's been taking out revolve around injecting humans with reptilian hormones because these hormones are capable of regenerating limbs. So when people are injured in uh, accidents and car crashes or plane crashes as in the case of paul they can they're able to recover however everyone except paul has begun to take on these reptilian traits and start to morph into these Mm -hmm. half alligator people pretty much sure we don't really see very many other people in this laboratory we see one other man uh who's suffering from the same thing paul does but that's it um i think most of his other experiments died like they like they just uh, yeah i guess so that seems right yeah well having a mix of warm and cold blood having lukewarm blood i can't imagine that's good for life expectancy so paul was the last of his patients to show any sign of reptilian traits but when he got a test back they said that it turned out positive and he was going to slowly evolve into a half alligator man so they sent the telegram to him while he was leaving for his honeymoon with joyce and that is what led him to come to the house so that hopefully he can be cured and eventually you know be reunited with his wife again which i gotta say kind of a shitty thing to do as a husband You know, just leave without a trace. And even if you were hoping for a cure, but you didn't want your wife to know everything, at least say something to her. Yeah, make up a story. Yeah. Or I got... I got drafted to go fight with Elvis <laughs> in, in, in in Germany in 1959, sure. Yeah, something like that, rather than just leaving without a trace and not, like, not sending And scrubbing your records somehow. Exactly. Like, to the point where she, you could, she could only find him through LSU, I guess. Like, I, I gotta say, Joyce can do better. And judging from her her life that we see in the framing device as this new this new character, yeah, game, she eventually did do better. Yeah, she's, she's a she, nurse. She seems great. I mean, she's repressing all these memories of a traumatic thing that happened to her. But you know, that can be a healthy thing. Fine. Maybe I don't know. Yeah, with the decision that they're going to go through with this treatment of pumping paul full of radiation and cobalt until he becomes human again. So they're going to be present, and before the treatment starts that evening. There is a great scene where the doctor makes sure to stress very intently that even the slightest bit over or under on this radiation could have drastic consequences for Paul. And who knows what could happen? As you can imagine, something drastic does happen. (laughs) 
because when they start the radiation treatment, which by the way, I love the laboratory set in this movie because you have like the futuristic sciencey laser device laser, that's yeah. pumping the radiation full. And then you have the wallpaper from like the suburban 1950s house in the corner of the lab. <laughs> it's beautiful. But when the laser starts pumping Paul full of radiation, Lon Chaney Jr. runs into the house in a drunken rage and bursts into the lab and decides to just lay waste to everything. Just destroys everything, runs into the machine, it starts smoking and burning. The laser keeps pumping Paul full of radiation. And when Lon Chaney breaks into the lab so he can finally get revenge on Paul, what do you know? Paul has officially turned into an alligator man. Yeah, he's got a snout. Yeah, he's got a snout. I mean, he's got a mask on. He's got the full alligator head (laughs) on a bipedal human-type body, but his entire body is now covered in scales. Mm -hmm. So he's even more alligator than man, I would argue, by this point. He doesn't have a voice anymore. He just has like an alligator, like growl or whatever. They call it a bellow with alligators. Bellow. Oh, interesting. I never knew that. Listen, I love reptiles, so I know I know the surprising amount about alligators and snakes and stuff like that. Yeah. The look of the alligator here is this is exactly what you go to B movies for. You know, this is just like pure bliss, like a guy in a super cheap costume who after he kills uh, Lon Chaney Jr. or maybe Lon Chaney Jr. just dies on his own because I remember he gets caught in cords and like gets electrocuted. So I Yeah, he gets know, electrocuted. <laughs> yeah, so I don't even know if that's something Paul does on his own. He gets the assist. So he tries to, like, talk to Lavania and to Joyce, but he can't talk anymore. He sounds like an alligator. So he, so they scream because they're so terrified of what they see, and he is so embarrassed that he runs away and flees into the swamp. And when Joyce chases after him, the entire house explodes because the machine has short-circuited. There's, like, there's radiation. There's all that stuff just leaking into the atmosphere. So everyone else is dead by this point, except Joyce and Paul. And when Paul runs into the swamp, he starts to fight an alligator. I wasn't sure if I missed anything here. Like, I don't know why he's fighting the alligator, but... He he wins. He 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 defeats it. Joyce is still trying to to chase after him, but then what do you know? Paul gets into some quicksand. Has any natural phenomena wrapped up movies quicker than quicksand? You know what I mean? That's just like the the Christopher Lee mummy movie. It's just like oh, he just quicksand got him, and you know, <laughs> it's just there's a a meme or a joke I saw online ages ago that I think about a lot when I see a movie like this where someone made a comment that I you know when I was a kid I thought quicksand would be a lot more of a problem in my life than it really is. Yeah. Yeah, I think I've seen the same thing. Yeah, because there's quicksand is it appears all over media. Yeah. Meanwhile, I don't think I've ever seen it once in real life. But it's not the kind of as far as I know, it's not the kind of thing where it's like it's not like the the death knell that they that they show in these movies. I oh could no, be wrong, of course not. It's insane. But that's what happens to Paul. He's in his you know he's in his cheap little alligator mask and sinks into quicksand as Joyce is screaming and crying for him. And I gotta say, Beverly Garland made a comment saying that you know, the hardest thing about making this movie was keeping a straight face. She does a good job with the 
with the, she does a good job throughout the whole thing but with this scene in particular where she has to cry and like you know is so upset that her husband is like dying in front of her but it's just a guy in a really cheap alligator suit like she does a good convincing job i gotta yeah. say that's the end of the story and then it cuts back to the two psychiatrists who are listening to the tapes of her whole like story again and they're trying to decide whether or not they should tell her about what's going on about what her past actually held and so she at that point mm -hmm. uh joyce who now goes by the name of jane comes into the office and she just appears happy and content with where she's at in this life so they make a decision not to tell her and that's how the film ends is just like <laughs> deciding to live in ignorant bliss well she she doesn't even decide it's they decide to oh yeah yeah to they decide it. yeah. it's not her decision <laughs> yeah of course they decide it for her they decide like yeah she's she's better off not knowing which is probably true. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking at what she went through and i just thinking about where she's at now. It's like, yeah, I mean, even if yeah, even if she did know, it's like she still would have to live with the knowledge that she that she married a guy who disappeared yeah. for months without telling her where she where he was. Yeah, regardless of the alligator part. You're right. So what did you think of this film? I enjoyed it. I don't know if I, I'm going to say more than I expected to, but I, I enjoyed it. I think, you know, you're going into a movie called the alligator people you're expecting some b-movie charms and we get those and mostly in, in the last 10 minutes or so but what kind of surprised me was the first hour or so and how kind of interesting it was it was i was a lot there was a lot more intrigue than i was expecting you know when when she's just trying to find out where her husband is yeah guy was actually engaged in the story and then Lon Chaney Jr. is out there just shooting up some alligators. Like, that's awesome. Lon Chaney Jr. is probably my favorite part of the movie, other than maybe the alligator makeup. Yeah. Well, I guess I love both looks, but I'm saying in particular the makeup when it's still a human face. Yeah, absolutely. Looks, and they, I agree. And they just make it look scaly. But uh, I love the, the alligator mask for, like, schlock purposes, of course. But, yeah, I I enjoyed the movie. What about you? I think it, it's it's a kind of like 50s B sci-fi movie that like you have to learn to take the good with the bad or at least the boring. Like on the one hand, you have Lon Chaney's performance, which is great. You have Beverly uh -huh. Garland, who I really like a lot. You have the original alligator makeup, which is good and interesting. And then you have the alligator mask, which is fun in like, um you know, a schlocky kind of way. Uh -huh. But that's still some kind of entertainment. But then there's still like some yeah. parts here and there that are just, you know, long rather boring stretches of not too much See, happening i didn't find it that boring i understand what you mean but i'm i'm guess i guess maybe in comparison to other like not even b movies but like 50s sci-fi there's usually long boring stretches i didn't think this movie had that the way some other movies do well it is short i think that's one of the best things that it has maybe. going for is but like, most of those movies are though, yeah <laughs> I don't know. I mean, you know, I've been super busy with stuff right now, so it's possible just I have a million things on my mind as I'm watching movies these days. Or maybe I think the other issue is that when Lon Chaney Jr. isn't on the screen or when Beverly Garland isn't on the screen, I'm not as taken by the performances of some of the other people, especially the performance of Paul. I would agree with that. And, uh, yeah. and so when scenes focus on Paul and his sort of dramatic arc... It's not it's not as effective. It's kind of like the old uh the old Poochie argument where it's like when characters aren't on screen when Beverly Garland or Lon Chaney aren't on screen, we should just be asking where's Lon Chaney. Sure. Uh, one thing I, I would like to stress too that I enjoyed that we didn't talk about too much was 
the use of actual alligators with the exception of the scene where they may or may not have run one over and killed it. Yeah. I like that this movie actually featured a lot of real alligators and they alligators are just awesome creatures to me. They're just neat. They're they're big, they're scary, their bellow is terrifying. Yeah. You know, even when Lon Chaney Jr. is shooting at him, you see real alligators. Like that to me is 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 neat. And, yeah. Um, they had people like interacting with the gators to the point where it's like, oh, this is dangerous if you don't know what you're doing. So that's like kind of impressive. Yeah, I think as far as these uh, these B, these 50s sci-fi B movies go, like you could do a lot worse than this for sure. Sure. And I think that there's you could, plenty. You could watch The Angry Red Planet, which we did earlier this season, which is one of the worst movies I've ever seen. Oh, I don't know if it's that bad, but it was bad. I'll definitely check it out. I'll check it out one of these days, but I'm not going to, you know, I wasn't going to rush out to watch it anyways, but I'll keep your anti-recommendation in mind. <laughs> okay. All right. So, Kevin, which of these two movies do you prefer, Martin or The Alligator People? I think Alligator People I would put on more often just to have played in the background, but Mar- there's no doubt that Martin's the better movie. Mm-hmm. Like, I love the I love the atmosphere of 50s sci-fi in general. I do too, yeah. Yeah, but no no question that Marvin is like a, a, a genuinely great movie. Uh, yeah, for me, this is an easy one, Martin. Martin demands a lot out of you, I think, as a viewer, because it's it's slow, and it's more so than being slow. It's just like depressing and sad. Yeah. But, you know, sometimes you, you want to watch movies like that. You know, like, I always joke that my favorite comedies are just really, really depressing comedies. Like, I love the Alexander Payne movies. Like, I could watch Sideways any day. That's, like, an incredibly depressing movie, and I love it. And so Martin is the comedy version, or not the comedy. <laughs> Martin, Martin is the horror version of Alexander Payne to me, so I appreciate it. Interesting way to look at it, but I can see, I can see what you mean. You always like to, to see if these would make a good double feature, right? Yeah, that's, that's one of our gimmicks, sure. What do you think? Well, no, first off, but I did think there was one thing that I could find one connection between these two, and that is that they both have, like, kind of fatalistic endings. Like, the endings for both of these films are kind of predicated on stuff that the protagonists didn't do. Like, Martin, you have... um, You have the... You have Kuda uh, killing Being, Martin, blaming over, him for uh, Abby's death. Yeah, blaming was, him for a death that wasn't, wasn't hidden. And in this one, you have Lon Chaney barging into the laboratory um, <laughs> to destroy the whole thing, and that also just causes his death with, without any regard for like the rest of the characters. Like it's not based on like motivated on like the main characters. It's just something. Sure. That we, to something to that be we, fair, though, it, to be fair, do we think the alligator thing could have been reversed if Lon Chaney Jr. didn't interrupt it? I think it was. I, <laughs> I think the whole thing was kind of doomed from the get go. But exactly. Um, <laughs> but yeah, but if you want to blame Lon. He Chaney, certainly didn't can. help. And the, it, honestly, the fact that Paul survived, even being turned into a man with the head of an alligator, and is still a living creature, kind of, kind of amazing. Yeah, it's kind of a scientific miracle. Wish that scientist had survived. Who knows what other p- things he could have come up with. Well, I'll, I'll agree. It's not a good double feature. I think both movies are good individually, but. I mean that that that's kind of an interesting commonality you found. Um, I'll also say like if you're just like a big horror fan, you appreciate like kind of the history of horror films. You have a George Romero and you have a Lon Chaney Jr. picture. You know, it's like two two heavy hitters. You know, in, in the genre, but that's really all I got. There. I guess there's sexual violence in both films. 
Lon Chaney Jr. or Martin himself. Yeah, right? but that I wouldn't go. I I would hope that anyone listening to this is not looking to make a double feature of films that <laughs> feature sexual, sexual violence. violence. Double feature, of course not. Yeah, watching watching irre- irreversible and um, uh, what's the the uh, I can't think of the other. Well, I guess just pick your rape revenge movie I exactly i one. spit on your grave or something yeah that's, i couldn't think of that they name call for some one eye god oh that one i really want to see i still haven't seen it actually it's, it's i really want to see <laughs> what's, what's the other title it goes by thriller a cruel picture yeah a cruel picture. which is a great <laughs> title an all-timer title right there so thank you kevin for joining me and thank you listeners for tuning in be sure to check out our Patreon for extended cuts of episodes as well as access to commentary tracks. As for our next episode, it is going to be on The Big Boss starring Bruce Lee and Mandy starring Nicolas Cage, which that's that movie's always on Shudder, so I think you'll be able to see it. Um, and yeah, thanks, thanks for joining us, and we hope to catch you next time. <laughs>